Stephen King is one of the most prolific authors of the last hundred years. Over 50 of his stories have been adapted into movies and TV series. Let's break down the top 20 Stephen King adaptations. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to another episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. And we are continuing our spooky season with a Stephen King episode, the top 20 Stephen King adaptations. We made a list of our favorites. We also made a list of the worst ones and other adaptations that were pretty good but just missed the mark and didn't make the list. But there are so many incredible all-time movies a few of my personal favorite movies are Stephen King adaptations. I'm sure the same for you. But it's really just fascinating and incredible to behold what Stephen King has done with his prolific career. Because he's written over 65 novels as well as short stories. But the fact that over 50 of them have been adapted for the screen is just insane. It showcases just how much of skill he has and how much of an imagination he has compared to many other writers where... He's tapped into this resource where so many people know his name. So many people have watched at least one of his movies or TV shows. And, I mean, that's so, such a rarity nowadays. And he really has had not just an impact on literature, but a huge impact on cinema. And he's from New England. Oh, yeah. He's from Maine, and he's a Red Sox fan. And I, I love to hear about... You know, locals interacting with Stephen King and how people are terrified about of him in person. You hear these stories. I, I read an interview where he said people always come up to me and ask me, first of all, they're scared to approach me because they think I'm some weird horror guy, but I'm just like a normal guy. I'm just a writer. And then they're always like, so so how do you come up with such scary concepts and ideas? You must love horror. He's like, I come up with these ideas because I'm afraid of everything. Like, <laughs> I'm afraid to turn my light on at night, like stuff like that. So it's incredible to see what he's accomplished in his insane career. Over 65 novels. And then he has a pen name that he's done seven novels plus over 200 short stories, many of which have been turned into movies. And the thing about Stephen King, he doesn't only write horror. I know he's always associated with horror, but I mean, movies like Shawshank Redemption, Stand By Me, these aren't horror movies. These aren't horror books. They've been turned into some of the most loved movies ever. I mean, Shawshank and Stand By Me, oh my goodness, people, Incredible. everyone loves those movies. Oh, yeah. Universally adored, but also just tapping into fear and dread and so many different great ideas and stories, whether you're dealing with vampires or demons or possession, the supernatural, coming up with his own kind of magic horror elements like Shining and The Shining, but just tapping in so many different parts of not just every genre, but the horror genre specifically. The guy can do anything. And it all came from Carrie. Carrie was his first novel that was put, that was published. It became a bestseller, and it became, uh, I believe, the first adaptation of his work. And ironically, Carrie was a novel that he gave up on, and he had written most of it. And what's crazy, this crazy story, he's one of the most successful writers ever, but he, he and his wife were living in a trailer. They had two young kids, two babies, and he wrote Carrie while sitting on the toilet seat which was next to the washer and dryer machine, like in the in the corner of their trailer. We've all been there. <laughs> <laughs> That's where he wrote Carrie. Imagine that. Now he's so successful and so widely known, but he came from such modest beginnings. And what happened was he didn't think it was very good, and he threw it in the trash. And then his wife actually picked it up of the trash can, read it, and was like, you have to finish this. And that gave him the confidence and the motivation to finish Carrie. Once he got that, it was published and it became a sensation. It became a number one bestseller in America. And then it was quickly adapted into Brian De Palma's film, Carrie. 
1976, which is one of my favorite horror movies from one of my favorite directors. So yeah, we all know you like Brian De Palma. <laughs> Everybody, everyone in the neighborhood knows you like Brian De, De Palma. He screams at the top of his lungs when he wakes up. I love, I love Brian De Palma. We all know Anthony. <laughs> Underrated director, but. That's what started it all, was Carrie. And from there, he just had such a wealth of imagination to extend from. And I adore his work. And I, I who writes as much as Stephen King? <laughs> it's absolutely insane how much he writes. Do you know his, his strategy? What's his... So, no. so he does this thing where he has to sit down, he has to write, I believe it's at least 20 pages, no matter what. And his, his day isn't done until he's written, I think, at least 20 pages. It can be good, it can be bad, it can be used in the novel or, or anything... He does that every day. So that's his routine of writing. That's how he's so prolific. He's made it part of his activity of like same thing as like eating or taking a shower, writing 20 pages. So that's how he's been so consistent. And so many of his movies and store books have been turned into movies and TV series. I've read, I think, maybe five of Stephen King's books, and I think they're all terrific. But I kind of want to read more, obviously. I read Salem's a lot for the first time. Uh, earlier this year because I know it's being turned into a film at Reboots in 2024 because the original was made back in, I think, 1982. It's on our list. But I think The Shining is an excellent novel as well, even though that's Kubrick did something very different with the movie. Yeah. I think that's a rare exception for me where I like the movie more than the book. Otherwise, every book-to-film adaptation, usually the book's better. Yeah. But then Shawshank Redemption, I've never read that. Never. But Stand By Me, I've read I've read a few others. I've read Dreamcatcher, mm -hmm. The Dark Tower. Well, oh, I read Dreamcatcher, too. Yeah. You, you got me on that. Yeah, Dark Tower is an amazing series, not just that one novel, but it's an incredible series. But, but that movie was a letdown. Yeah, I mean, we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> Secret Window, I read. I didn't read Dr. Sleep. The Mist I've read. Dr. Sleep is an excellent book, and mm. it's one of the better adaptations in terms of how close it is to the book. Misery I've read. I haven't read it. I'm still kind of daunted by the size of it. But you'll read Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows. That's different, man. It's <laughs> different. It's funny because I'll read Dune seven <laughs> times before I read it. <laughs> and then I've read The Shining, and The Shining is probably the most different from what the actual novelization is, so... Uh, Want to get into our list? I mean, I, I would love to get into the list. Top 20 well, Stephen King adaptations. Well, before we get into this, actually, I would like to talk about the directors that he's worked oh, with. Oh, yes. And it's incredible how many of these in sensational legendary directors have worked with Stephen King, but multiple times. Rob Reiner's worked with them multiple times. Kubrick only did the one. Frank Darabont's done multiple movies for adaptations for Stephen King, as well as Louis Teague. Andy Muschietti obviously did the It series. John Carpenter has done multiple movies for Stephen King adaptations. We have David Cronenberg on this list. Mike Flanagan, who's a, a new, young, hot horror director. He's done, I think, three adaptations so right for now. Stephen King. He is really hot. And George A. Romero's done multiple. So he's worked with so many legends in the filmmaking world to adapt his movies and TV series. So we're so excited to talk about this episode. And of course, if you're listening on an audio platform, you can watch on YouTube as well, and vice versa. If you're watching on YouTube, go listen on other platforms. If you gotta leave the house, if you gotta like go to the gym or something, if you're at work and you're trying to hide it from your boss, <laughs> listen to us on platforms anywhere, everywhere. You can find Writers of Lost Podcast. Let's get into our Stephen King Adaptations, starting with number one, Anthony, what we got? <laughs> Coming in hot. Coming in. I'm excited. We got The Shining at number one. Big surprise there. Came out in 1980, directed and written by Stanley Kubrick. Rotten Tomatoes has an 83% critic score and a 93% audience score, widely loved by audiences. On IMDb, it has an 8.4 rating, and it lists, it's listed at number 146 on the IMDb Top 250. 
The Shining follows Jack Torrance as he becomes the winter caretaker of the isolated Overlook Hotel. Bow, 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 bow. Now you keep talking. I'll do the bow, okay. In bow, Colorado, bow, hoping to cure his writer's block, bow, he settles bow, in along with his bow. wife, Wendy, <laughs> and his son, Danny, who is plagued by psychic premonitions. As Jack's writing goes nowhere and Danny's visions become more disturbing, Jack discovers the hotel's dark secrets and begins to unravel into a homicidal maniac hell-bent on terrorizing his family. Four months of peace and quiet is exactly what I want. <laughs> Got any that's, ideas? That's great, Jack. That's great. I love The Shining so, so much. It's uh, one of my all-time favorite movies, horror movie for sure. This is one of those movies that when you're a kid, especially before the internet, before social media, before smartphones, you heard so much about movies from word of mouth. And when you're a kid, The Shining for us, growing up in the 90s, was that movie that you weren't allowed to see for a while, but adults were talking about it. Older kids always talked about it. You heard about it. You saw clips and trailers and posters, and you saw You know that Jack Torrance is this guy with this axe, this axe-wielding maniac. And then you finally watch it when you're, like, old enough, or you sneak from your parents and your older brothers show you when you're, like, 11. Finally! And it's just a crazy experience. And I'll never forget the first time I watched The Shining. And it's just stuck with me since then. I, I watched it again the other night just because it's spooky season. It's an annual watch of mine in October. I adore every second of this movie. And there's so much to it that Stanley Kubrick hid in there. The adaptation's a little different from the book, of course, because he gives the audience the, the uh, potential reality that it's not necessarily the supernatural, but cabin fever, insanity, this family going crazy together. And in terms of adaptations, like I said earlier, it's so different from the novel. The novel has a lot of incredible aspects that we don't get to see in Kubrick's adaptation, but you can see it in Stephen King's own personal adaptation, which was a miniseries. There's a lot of cool supernatural elements, like the bushes I love. The, there are animal bushes that come to life. There are other aspects to the hotel clearly showcasing it is supernatural. And I love those parts of the novel. But on top of that... What shine, what, with the Shining adaptation for the film that Kubrick did, it really, I wouldn't say it's better, but it became something very different and special in its own right. And in a way, he came up with ideas for The Shining that uh, Stephen King didn't have, and he expanded on them in the way that Kubrick does. And I, th I think he brought something that, if it, was a, if it was a literal adaptation and a faithful adaptation, it might not have uh, been as good, and it might not have caught on with the popular culture and audiences as it had. So, in a way, St uh, uh, Stanley Kubrick straying away from King is probably the strength, the biggest strength of the film adaptation. One of the major changes is the axe. That's not yes. in the book. It's a big wooden mallet instead mm -hmm. from that, what's that fancy uppity croquet? game? Croquet? Croquet? Is that what it's called? Cricket. Cri no, not no, no. Cr Cricket's, Cricket's the, the bat. bat. The wooden mallet with the balls that like upper class Something. people play. Someone Something. let us know what the elites yeah. play when they're in garden parties. <laughs> and, <laughs> and things like that as well as the distortion of Jack's face. And in the book, it is supernatural possession. But again, in the movie, it could be just going insane, going crazy, this great ghost story. And The Shining is really special because this is a movie 43 years later. It's still being analyzed still being talked about people are still discovering new things about it they're still debating little intricacies and details that stanley kubrick put into it because he's such a a master filmmaker and everything and every frame of this movie was done on pur purpose whether he's messing with the audience making you feel like something's off this eerie tone like a chair is there in the corner of the room one second but then he cuts back and it's moved somewhere else or Ullman's office is inside the overlook but 
there's no reason for there to be a window overlook the guarding the garden in the backyard. Like, the, all these things with the blueprint and the layouts of The Shining, as well as subliminal messages, the uh, uh, insinuation that Stanley Kubrick was alluding to him shooting the moon landings, the Apollo moon landings, which I don't know if anyone prescribes to that, but it's really fun to explore. Room 237, why he changed that from the book. It's like room 248 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And also, I think that it's such a special film. What was I just about to say? I was on a, I don't know, man. You're on a, on a tear. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, and also the music for Scratch this film. Scratch that. Erase it. The music is terrific in this movie because uh-huh. not only does Cuba create this tone that very rare and few filmmakers can create. I think Yorgos Lanthimos is a, a modern contemporary example of someone who's able to create this eerie, otherworldly tone where what you're watching, you have no doubt that it's real. It feels like it's reality. But using the music from Penderecki, as well as Wendy Carlos, who was a, a pioneer in the synthesizer world of music, creating her own synthesizers. And not the, it's not the first movie to use synthesizers. I believe Dr. Strangelove was. But it was an, a pioneering film for synthesizers, as well as Steadicam. Oh, the man, the Steadicam. I, I look at this film as supernatural and a ghost story. Um, although it, I can see how you can view it as ambiguous. And, I've watched it like 25 times, yeah. and I, I am now leaning to everyone's just insane in the Kubrick version. But what about like Halloran shining and stuff? Like the, everybody who just spends time in the hotel is insane? Just going insane. I think it's fun to, to it take. fun. It's a hot take. It is a hot take. It's very hot. <laughs> spicy. But I mean, for everything you just said, it's, it's, I agree completely. All right, let's move on to number two, Jim. What do we got for number two for the second greatest Stephen King adaptation? Well, it's an episode we just did recently, <laughs> The Shawshank Redemption, directed by Frank Darabont, who adapted a short story or a novella from Stephen King, which is a long short story. It's shorter than a book. It's like 100 pages. A little, 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 little The most loved film of all time, according to IMDb user ratings list, where it's number one, it surpassed The Godfather in 2008 to have a 9.3 with over 2.8 million ratings. That is insane. Especially because people don't really use IMDb anymore. It's insane. (laughs) Now, the film tells the story of banker Andy Dufresne, who was sentenced to life in Shawshank State Penitentiary for the murders of his wife and her lover, the golf pro. That's who he's called in the movie. Despite his claims of innocence, over the following two decades, he befriends a fellow prisoner, contraband smuggler Ellis Red Redding, and becomes instrumental in a money laundering operation led by the prison warden Samuel Norton. And we did an episode on this just two weeks ago. Yeah. It's sensational. It's not the first time we talked about it, but I highly recommend checking it out. Yeah. I mean, we won't, we won't repeat ourselves too much. Let's repeat ourselves. <laughs> okay. This is a new episode, man. <laughs> All right. It's new. It's not new. everyone watched it. I, I adore this film. We grew up watching it. It was on TV a lot. And it was, I don't think we owned it. But it was something that like, it was like always on TNT. Yeah, did you, did you have this on VHS and watch it 15 <laughs> times, Anthony? Not as much as Ninja Turtles. <laughs> <laughs> but Shawshank is a special film. And after watching it again recently, two weeks ago, I really do see it being why it's one of the most beloved films ever. I can see that for sure. And it really is one of the most deeply human and beautiful stories ever told. Um, it's just a sensational film. And it's got to be up there in all-time directorial debuts. It's up. It's one of the greatest. You, it's like this, 
Citizen Kane, Reservoir Dogs. Well, the thing with this is it reminds me so much of Citizen's, Citizen Kane because of how grand it is, the scope of it. It's massive. The sets are enormous. For a first-time director for a feature-length film, Frank Darabont, no one ever brings this up for directorial debuts. I feel like it, yeah. It's I, I, up, I feel like it's I don't up there. It's list. sensational. Yeah. It's the most loved movie of all time. It's, it's, it's just an impressive directorial effort, just even if it wasn't a debut. It's just like what he did, all of his choices— the crew he hired, and how he approached the material it was just really sensational. It's a perfect movie. The writing is terrific. Such a great script, as well as keeping the audience in the dark for so long until the third act of the film. We have no idea, spoiler alerts, that Andy Dufresne has been digging a tunnel through his wall for 18 years, two years after he discovers that the wall and the stone of his cell is weak from years of erosion, and he can use his little rock hammer he got from his best bud, Red, to dig a tunnel to freedom. It takes, you, you don't find out to the third act. And then on rewatches, you see all the little details of the guards and warden almost discovering all of his little secrets, as well as the money laundering and great metaphors of capitalism, as well as how horrible prisons were, basically creating slave labor and money laundering schemes and just all this crime ironically happening at the head of the facility, the most important person there who proclaims himself to be religious and pure and innocent is the dirtiest one of them all inside this entire prison. It's great. Man, what a movie. I love it. I adore it. Crazy. <laughs> all right. At number three, this is one of my favorite horror movies of all time. Carrie, which came out in 1976, directed by... This guy, Brian De Palma? You got you heard of him? <laughs> <laughs> no, I heard him when you woke up this morning and screamed his name. I heard, yeah, yeah. You heard? You hear that? I wasn't sure. <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes has a critic score of 93% and a pretty average audience score of 77%. On IMDb, Carrie has a 7.1, 7.4 rating. In this chilling adaptation of Stephen King's horror novel, withdrawn and sensitive team Carrie White played by Sissy Spacek, Oscar nominee, faces ta- in this film, she's an Oscar winner, faces taunting classmates at school and abuse from her fanatically pious mother at home. When strange occurrences start happening around Carrie, she begins to suspect that she has supernatural powers. Invited to the prom by empathetic Tommy Ross, Carrie tries to let her guard down, but things eventually take a dark and violent turn. This is one of the early telekinesis Movies you see, it's not just in the horror genre, but even in sci-fi. This is one of the controlling things with your mind, being able to move objects. Carrie has this ability, and she's able to do really cool and beautiful things, but also she's, she's capable of terror and chaos and causing intense dam- damage and pain we see by the end of the film. It's an incredible early role by Sissy Spacek. I believe it might be her debut as an actress. Oscar nominee. And this is the one that, for Stephen King adaptations, I see as the biggest inspiration for Stranger Things with the telekinesis um, with Eleven and Carrie. Um, but this film, it's really kind of dreamlike in its quality, the way De Palma approaches it, especially with the music and his filmmaking. And then it has great balance of horror contrasted with religion, which I always like to see. Um, she, Her mother is deeply religious and sissy, it's possible she might have religious powers or they could be supernatural powers. It's never really dis- explained. Or demonic or powers. Or demonic powers. That, that might be the contrast with her mother. And it's just so, got such an iconic, famous third act in the gymnasium after the prom night. 
And then Carrie has one of my favorite final minute of all time in film history. Yeah, it's one of my favorite endings yeah. of a movie of all time. And before we continue, we know that you all love movie podcasts and are always on the lookout for others. And we'd love to recommend our good friends at the Confused Breakfast podcast. You may remember they came to Los Angeles. They did a Point Break episode with us. These guys are awesome. Mike, Sean, and AJ are great friends of ours. What's great about Confused Breakfast is they're so much like us, but they tackle different kinds of movies. They'll talk about movies from the 80s, 90s, and the 2000s. So they do a lot of those classics from the past. Some of their most recent episodes that we love are Back to the Future. They did a great one on Tombstone, Blazing Saddles, Waterworld, Starship Troopers, Armageddon, Dumb and Dumber, Twister, and so many more other bangers from the 80s and 90s. These guys are absolutely hilarious. They have this great bit on their show. It's called The Most Punchable Face, which I find to be absolutely hilarious. And they also do fan theories for movies and plots and characters. It's tough for podcasts to find new fans these days because there's so many goddamn celebrities taking over the audience. So we recommend checking out the Confused Breakfast podcast. And just talking about these first three adaptations for Stephen King movies... What's so special about them is, even though they may have been changed slightly, they have some of the most iconic moments in cinema yes. history. I mean, we're talking about the axe in the door with Jack trying to kill Wendy in the bathroom in The Shining at the Overlook Hotel. Iconic, maybe the most iconic film moment in American history, as well as Shawshank Redemption. The poster being t torn off the wall, discovering that Andy has gone through a tunnel and he's escaped. Iconic film moment. And then Carrie, the pig's blood being poured on her after she wins the prom queen, that's one of the most iconic horror moments ever. So just the top three, some of the most recognizable beats in cinema history for great movies. And I think that's just the power of Stephen King. Even though some of them are slightly changed, like in The, in the Shining, it's still so memorable. Yeah, that's a great so point. so powerful. And Carrie's awesome. And it, it had a unnecessary remake recently. Chloe Grace Moretz is a great actress, but that movie did not get, need to get made. It's very lukewarm. It just was unnecessary, and we didn't need it because the original is a perfect horror movie. De Palma's, like Anthony said, one of the best and most underrated directors out there. I mean, this guy can do anything, and he's made so many great horror movies and, and weird movies from the 60s, from the 70s and 80s that not a ton of people have seen. Obviously, everyone knows him for his hits like Scarface and the original Mission Impossible, but Carrie's one of his best for sure. And at the time, it was very unique. And again, I won't spoil the ending, but it's got to be one of the best endings in horror of all time. It's great. I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to number four. Let's get out of the horror genre for a little bit. Yeah, I'm tired of horror. Even though there's some disturbing stuff in this, but it's really a great coming-of-age story between four friends. Number four, we have Stand By Me, released in 1986, directed by Rob Reiner. This is his first film on the list, but not the last. Rotten Tomatoes, it is a 92% critic score, 94% audience score, 8.1 on IMDb. This is just a universally adored film. A coming-of-age movie that everyone as their coming-of-age watches at some point. Maybe not with this new generation, but when There we are were, other new ones yeah, for them, yeah. When we were kids, this was, again, one of those movies like, oh, you gotta watch Stand By Me. It's like a requirement of going from the age 7 to 12. You have to watch Stand By Me 17 times. Now, after learning that a stranger has been accidentally killed near their rural homes, four Oregon boys decide to see the body. On the way, these friends encounter a mean junk man in a marsh full of leeches as they also learn more about one another and their very different home lives. Just a lark at first, the boys' adventure evolves into a defining event in their lives. And I love this because it's just a great story about friendship 
and these great nuggets of, of wisdom of these kids, especially the, the lead kid played, who plays, uh, who's Gordy, who grows up to be a great writer. And he has all these great nuggets that he's talking about in voiceover work. And one of my favorite bits is I never had friends today as close as I had with, or I never had friends as close as I had when I was 12 years old compared to when I was an adult. Like meaning that your, the friendships when you're young are the most special to you and the most powerful and the most long lasting in your memories. Like those friendships you have when you're young, when you're like 10, 11, 12 years old, you're going on these adventures. And this is an adventure movie, even though it's nothing too exciting. It's not like a never ending story adventure, but we still have kind of the same trials and tribulations of going through leeches instead of like that great D disturbing murky swamp, swamp that yeah. Atreyu has to go through as well as all these great challenges dealing with bullies dealing with older brothers and siblings and your family life and home life and we actually did a watch party or a private watch party with Becca with this movie right yeah we did stand by me yeah because yeah. she's a chosen one patron so she got to her private watch party and she chose stand by me and Richard Dreyfus actually plays the narrator that's right yeah, yeah that's yeah. he's got a great voice and he is the narrator of the film and also there's a couple of like the story flashbacks and my favorite one is the pie story. And it, that's basically oh, the pie eating contest. Yeah, the contest <laughs> Cause we're they're around the campfire telling stories and you know, what Rob Renner did was he implemented the actual stories visually for us. And the pie eating one is a great one of, you know, that, cause that's conversations, just talking, telling stories, making anecdotes. And even if they're true or not, it's still fun. And I like how, Stephen King even put that into his novel, like just telling a story. If it's, it could be true or could not be true, but that's like an important part of the novel and an important part of the of the movie. Things like that are just incredible. Then you have the great cast and a uh, bunch of great, talented young actors. Kiefer Sutherland, one of his early roles, he's play he plays the bully in this one. River Phoenix, early River Phoenix, role. I mean, yeah. he's he's Chris Chambers. He's not the lead, but he's like the. Uh, the, the the tough guy of the group or like kind of like the the leader he's the leader of the game but not the leader of the movie yeah and then um uh Corey Feldman's in this Feldman, early yes, role yeah. but it's great because each of the young boys they're kind of just characters of adults turn into children especially with Corey Feldman's character whose father is off at war I think it's Vietnam then he's got the persona of someone who's like yeah. come back from Vietnam he almost has PTSD because of his broken home he dresses like uh, a veteran in a lot of ways <laughs> and it's just really interesting to just take the the character motifs of adults and put them on children because a lot of the times that's what we are we we see things on TV or movies or interpret what our, our parents or older brothers and siblings are like and we yeah. kind of act like them even though we're not that age yet mirroring exactly we mirror things exactly but it's yeah. great it's so funny but also it's just the intrigue and curiosity of children and, and young kids that we can all relate to of oh we gotta go find this dead body let's go see what it's like we've yeah. all done weird stuff like that we all we all want like that kind of adventure but we never i never had one like there's a burnt down car let's go check it out <laughs> it's like it's like the uh, it's like a goonies type movie without with without the fantasy obviously yeah yeah, yeah. but still it's incredible no pirate ship and yeah. guy Hey, you guys! <laughs> Guy. <laughs> Whatever his name is, I'm sorry. <laughs> we got some unsubscribes after that one. Uh, uh, come on, man. I can't remember his name either. I can't remember. It's, um... <laughs> I don't know. John. <laughs> Joe. Something with a he, Gus. He up. seems like a good Joe. Gu Ga Gar Gus. Gary. Gus. Yeah, we'll go with Gus. <laughs> Gus sounds good. Let's move on to number five, Anthony. Number five is one of the more recent adaptations of a Stephen King novel, It. Chapter One, which came out in 2017 and was written and directed by Andy Muschietti. Muschietti. Rotten Tomatoes has a critic score of 86% and an audience score of 84%. IMDb, this is a 7.3. 
Seven young outcasts in Derry, Maine are about to face their worst nightmare, an ancient shape-shifting evil that emerges from the sewer every 27 years to prey on the town's children. Banding together over the course of one horrifying summer, the friends must overcome their own personal fears to battle the murderous, bloodthirsty clown known as Pennywise. This was such a great surprise of 2017, and it was one of my favorite movies that year. It's a sensational horror film, really incredibly well made, so well shot. Music's awesome by Benjamin Walfish. Uh, Muschietti coming off of Mama, which is another great horror film um, produced by Guillermo del Toro. I really love this film. And Bill Skarsgård really is the key to it working. He was a terrifying Pennywise. He kind of, it's going to go down as an all-time horror performance as the decades go on. People are always going to remember what Skarsgård did as Pennywise. It Chapter 1 is much better than It Chapter 2. Number 2 is still very good, but It Chapter 1, fantastic. It's it's well-paced. And the kids do a great job. The kids are really talented, uh, and they hold their own with more experienced and veteran actors. And I love the CGI. Uh, I love the blood. I love the gore. I mean, there's really nothing about this film that doesn't work. And for Stephen King adaptations, it's got to be an all-timer. Just like how Pennywise every 27 years gets hungry to eat children and people in this town, I feel like this movie really whet the appetites of audiences' desire for horror because it was wildly successful. It was like $700 million at the box office, yeah. right? Yeah. And it was kind of this new style of horror that we've been seeing in a, in a lot of ways, like a big budget horror film. And it was so well directed and it was so sharp that I think it led to this massive surge we've seen the last six or seven years or, or contributed to it. That holy crap, these studios are like, look how successful a rated R horror movie can be. Let's green light as many as we can right now because we are in a huge horror boom. The last last year, 2022, was one of the best years of horror we've had in decades. And this last five years has been incredible. In 2017, we had, we had other greats. Uh, horror films and then 2014 we had movies like it follows coming out but i think that this one showed studios that rated r horror can be highly profitable you don't always have to make 700 million dollars but i mean look at talk to me making 80 million dollars at the box office on a three million dollar budget it's absolutely sensational i mean 2017 we also had hereditary come out that year and get out so 2017 was a massive year for horror and i believe right i think hereditary was 2014 was it that early because Midsummer was 2019. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, let me I'm see. I'm pretty sure Hereditary is 2017. I always think that Hereditary and, is and older Get Out than was it definitely is. 2017, right? Get Out was uh, Hereditary was 2018. Okay, and then Get Out was 20. Must have been 2019. Get Out. Because what year did Phantom Thread come out? Because that was while Paul Thomas Anderson was in production. He saw Get Out. Get Out was 2017. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. 2017, 2018. Great couple of years of horror. All of these movies. I mean, those three. It's Get Out, Hereditary, wildly successful horror films, rated R. Studios are like, let's do it. And I think It Chapter One was a great example in everything you said. I mean, ad adapting something like this that had been done before, Tim Curry playing the original Pennywise in the TV miniseries back in 1992 or wherever it was, everyone knew that series, whether you'd seen it or not, you'd seen the look, you'd seen the aesthetic, it was dated. Even though it was good at the time and it's still, you know, kind of a cult classic, 
it was dated. It didn't hold up anymore, especially the, the costume design of Tim Curry. But changing it up, making this horrific CGI as well as intense prosthetic version of Pennywise worked so well. Muschietti was a, is a great director. I don't care what anyone says. I like The Flash a lot. Yeah. And I'm, I think Batman's going to be in good hands with him. And he proved that he can do it with the It movies. These are movies that... I mean, how do you adapt it so well? And I think you did a great job. And I just love, it's so rare to see horror done with a huge budget. This is a very big budget for a horror film. So it's, I just love that because it gives them more things to do and more more sets to work with and really gives the director and, and filmmakers freedom to really express their imagination. And the child casting yeah. was great. I think Finn Wolfhard is obviously just a fan favorite from Stranger Things, but <laughs> everyone was so good in this movie with these oh, yeah. child performances. And I think that was only the, the best part about uh, it. Chapter two was the adult castings because <laughs> they did a great job as that for that as well. Now let's get on to number six in our Stephen King adaptation list. We have another movie from Rob Reiner. Yes, the sides cured cancer. That's why they cost twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> twenty six thousand dollars for sides. He's got a great cameo in The Wolf of Wall Street. He plays Jordan Belfort's father in that movie. Now number six we have Misery coming out in nineteen ninety, starring Kathy Bates and James Caan a very underrated horror movie. Ron Tomatoes, it is 91% critic score, 90% audience score. So underrated. <laughs> no, I mean, with like, no one ever talks about misery. I know, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm gonna, you sound like a commenter. <laughs> you sound like a TikTok hater right now. Maybe it's, it, maybe it's English Anthony, teachers be. Anthony must be the haters that we get. He's just in his burner accounts. Like, James looks like an idiot. Like, no wonder my videos always get so much hate. <laughs> and he's got seven Twitter accounts with anonymous names with anime profile photos. I got photos. a bunch of Finstas. A bunch of Finstas. <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes, critics scored 91%. Audience scored 90%. IMDb is a 7.8. Those are great scores. After a serious car crash, novelist Paul Sheldon, played by James Caan, is rescued by former nurse Annie Wilkes, played by Kathy Bates. And she was nominated for an Oscar. She won the Oscar for, for this, this one? Yeah. Deservedly so. Who claims to be his biggest fan. Annie brings him to her remote cabin to recover, where her obsession takes a dark turn when she discovers Sheldon is killing off her favorite character from his novels. As Sheldon devises a plan for escape, Annie grows increasingly controlling even violent, and that's an understatement, <laughs> as she forces the author to shape his writing to suit her twisted fantasies and twisted this movie is. It's very dark. It seems a little innocent at first, which is great. It's lulling you into a false state of security, false sense of security, but then there are some crazy twists of violence and gore that just make your skin crawl because, you know, James Conn's this novelist, crashes his car in the middle of a blizzard, this character, this former nurse, takes him in. And like the synopsis says, she wants him to basically rewrite what he's going to do. Because I believe he has his copy that he's going to show the publisher yes. in the car. And she reads it and she's dissatisfied with yeah, it. Yeah, so he kills Misery. This is the final Misery novel. And she's obsessed with the character of Misery. And so she thinks that it's an outrage. And she ends up basically gearing his, steering his writing in how she wants Misery to go. And it's, it's a great setup because at first you think, oh, she's a good Samaritan. Like, she saved him. She repaired him. She's repaired him like repaired a, him. <laughs> a truck. <laughs> Get a couple of wrenches. I got there. an auto body shop down the street. <laughs> I'm going to repair you. Uh, she's, looking at, she's mending his wounds, looking after him. And, and there's a blizzard. And, like, it makes he, sense. It's like he Get can't. For, yeah. yeah, she keeps saying, like, there's no way cars can drive on these roads. It's too much snow. And so... The audience accepts, like, oh, this is, like, a gr perfect situation. Like, <laughs> she, like he would have died and frozen frozen to death out there. Yeah. But then 
we slowly learn that she keeps making up excuses of why she can't contact anyone, why she can't get help, and why she can't bring him to a hospital. And then things get a very nasty turn, and then things turn into violence. And Misery has one of the most uh, excellent scenes of violence in prosthetics ever done, which is when she breaks his ankles with the wooden block in, in oh, wow. the <laughs> James is vomiting. <laughs> it kills like it's one of those scenes that you, you yeah. wanna look away but you can't. So she takes a sludge she takes a wooden block, places it between his ankles, and then she takes a sledgehammer and then she breaks both ankles with the sledgehammer. Um to prevent him from ever really escaping and in letting her control him, letting him uh, l- letting her completely dominate him and then through her wishes write misery the way she wants misery to be written and james Kahn's character is just trying to figure out a way out of this and it's a fantastic performance from james Kahn as well they're both incredible and for a movie set in mostly one location with mostly just two characters i'm talking an hour 20 hour and a half of screen time with just two people in, in this house it's just incredible it's so well paced it's very thrilling very suspenseful just excellent, excellent directing by Rob Reiner. And I don't want to spoil like some of my favorite moments from the movie, but there are times where Sheldon, you think he's gonna escape. Oh my he God, has these yeah. plans. They're really clever plans. They almost, they almost work, but then just something happens and it doesn't work out. And he's screwed, and it's incredible. She's making him completely dependent on him, dependent on her. But also, he comes to realize that like even if I write it the right way, I'm not gonna escape this place. Yeah. Then he turns it into a great book. <laughs> <laughs> but the way it ends is incredible. I, you gotta watch Misery if you've never seen it. Yeah, I love it. You gotta watch it. Moving on to number seven. We have another Frank Darabont film. We have The Green Mile. This came out in 1999, one of the, or the biggest year in cinema history. Rotten Tomatoes, it's a 79% critic score. Seems kind of low. Rotten Tomatoes, it's a 94% audience score. IMDb. It's an 8.6, wow. number 28 on the all-time user rating list. Let's run through a synopsis, which stars Tom Hanks. Paul Edgecombe walked the mile with a variety of cons. He had never encountered someone like John Coffey, played by Michael Clark Duncan, who got an Oscar nominee for this film. A massive man convicted of br- brutally killing a pair of young sisters. Coffey had the size and strength to kill anyone, but not the demeanor. Beyond his simple, naive nature and a deathly fear of the dark, Coffee seemed to possess a prodigious supernatural gift. Paul began to question whether Coffee was truly guilty of murdering the two girls. This film is excellent. Another prison film from Frank Darabont, but very different, but, but having supernatural elements from a bunch of Stephen King stories and novels that we come to know. Great, great performances, as well as a great uh, supporting role from Sam Rockwell as one of the yeah. other prisoners. But this character of Coffee, who's this giant who could never even harm an insect gentle before. giant. A yeah. gentle giant, so pure and innocent, wrongly or potentially wrongfully convicted of murdering these two girls. And I don't want to spoil the ending, obviously. But it's just a great film because it just take it analyzes racism as well as prejudice because this is an era what is it the 1920s or 30s i believe it's the i believe it's the 20s yeah somewhere in the early 20th century and just the prejudices that go into imprisoning someone who may be wrongly convicted of a crime and so the film it's it gives coffee it's they say supernatural in the description but the way i look i've always looked at the film is that i think that coffee is a resurrection of jesus christ because he has christ-like powers healing, premonition, um, foresight. 
And so the way I look at it is, imagine if Jesus was resurrected, but he was a black convict in the 20s in the South. Like, how would he be treated? And this is, I think that's what, that's the way I look at the film. And it's just an ingenious setup. And it's really the, the prison guards throughout the course of the film growing to maybe understand and accept that. Uh, but there is that, that, that villain prison guard. I can't remember that actor's name. He's, he's sensational. The one that they ended up putting in an electric chair. Disturbia. Yeah, that guy. He's awesome in the role as one of the main antagonists of the film. Uh, but Michael Clark Duncan is David Morris. David Morris. No, no. Um, the 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 creepy guy. You know what I'm talking about? Hold on. I'll, I'll look. It yeah, up. you'll on. you'll recognize it if you see him. He's like the the bad prison guard, who who over. Remember he overshocks someone on the electric chair when it's his first time, and he ex he gets excited by killing this guy, and then he gets to the point where he's frying the guy and, and melting him and basically frying his his entire head here here i have the cast this up because it's not barry pepper no no not barry pepper he's got a southern accent it is um uh, doug hutchinson gotcha. doug hutchinson's fantastic in this film although i've never really seen him in much else but the whole cast is amazing it's a really great ensemble we saw like you said barry pepper sam rockwell in early roles of theirs and michael clark duncan really is a magnificent performer in this film and then getting tom hanks who Darabont actually had in mind for Andy Dufresne in Road to um, <laughs> what's it called? Road to Perdition. Road, no, <laughs> I'm getting mixed up with like, Tom, he Tom make, Hanks. He didn't make Road to Perdition. Tom Hanks, Deacon, Shawshank Redemption was, <laughs> oh. was his first choice for Andy Dufresne. So getting he, I'm sure it was just like a dream come true to have Tom Hanks act in a film of his. But it's a really incredible film. I remember it making a very strong and striking impact on me as a kid. Moving on. Let's do it. Okay, we got a Cronenberg one. Oh, yeah. This is the other name that Anthony <laughs> screams when he wakes up in the morning. Scorsese, <laughs> De Palma, Cronenberg. <laughs> David Cronenberg directed the film adaptation of The Dead Zone, which we have at number eight, which came out in 1983. This film has an 89% Rotten Tomatoes critic score and a 77% audience score. On IMDb, it is a 7.2 rating. When Johnny Smith, played by Christopher Walken, awakens from a coma caused by a car accident, he finds that years have passed. He now has psychic abilities. Heartbroken that his girlfriend has moved on with her life, Johnny must contend with the unsettling powers which allow him to see a person's future with a mere touch. After shaking the hand of an aspiring politician, Greg Stilson, played by Martin Sheen, Johnny sees the danger presented by the candidates rise and resolves to kill him. This is an excellent film. One of my favorite Christopher Walken performances. So what basically happens is he's just an average guy, gets in a car wreck, wakes up with supernatural powers, and he ends up using these powers to help people and even helping the local police with investigating murders by seeing with his premonitions what's happening, who caused these murders. And that gets in the attention of media, press, and um, the, the, um, television. So he wants to go into hiding. However, when he does shake the hand of the politician, he sees the, the havoc and the, the wars that this would-be president would enact on the world. So he plots to kill this guy. It's, it's a really great, great horror movie, and it's, it's really well done. It's another one with supernatural abilities, um, telekinesis, uh, mind reading, but it's super, super well done. It is, and it's one of my favorite looks for Christopher Walken yeah. in the movie, too. He's got a great character design. I highly recommend checking it out. We should probably... 
cruise a little more. Yeah, we're, yeah. Let's get yeah, into number yeah. nine. I was just having. Well, I feel like the the top five we had yeah, to take our time. Yeah, we're gonna let it out, man. But yeah, we were like a forty five. It's gonna be an eight this. hour episode. I mean, I ain't got nowhere to be. <laughs> but let's move on to number nine. We'll go through ten, and then we'll do take our intermission. And then do the remaining 10. How's that sound? Yes, sir. So number nine, we have another movie from 1983. I think King had three adaptations come out this year. Horror was so huge. hot. Horror was huge in the 80s and 70s, obviously. We have Christine from John Carpenter, Rotten Tomatoes, a 71% critic score, 64% audience score. IMDb is a 6.7. Synopsis for this film. Unpopular nerd Amy Cunningham buys a 1958 Plymouth Fury, which she, which he names, I'm sorry, Arnie. 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 Yeah, I was like, his name's Arnie. I should have used a bigger font. So Arnie Cunningham buys a 58 Plymouth Fury. The, R, the aerial font, the R next to the N does look like yeah, an M. Yeah, <laughs> which he names Christine. Arnie develops an unhealthy obsession with the car to the alarm of his jock friend, Dennis Gilder. After bully Buddy Repperton defaces Christine, the auto restores itself to perfect condition and begins killing off Buddy and his friends. Determined to stop the deaths, Dennis and Arnie's girlfriend, Lee Cabot, decide to destroy Christine. It's it's so unique and awesome, like a horror movie where the monster villain killer is a car. A killer car. A killer I love co- it. <laughs> it's it's so ridiculous and outlandish, it works. You it know? does. It's fun. It's different. It's not the best movie in the world, but it's it's... It's shot really well. John Carpenter, I always have, have been a big fan of his cinematography. He loves anamorphic, and his lighting techniques with his team are just, they always look fantastic. Uh, I just watched uh, a couple of his movies the last few weeks, and it's, he's just a, such an impressive director. And Christine is absolutely wild and bonkers. It's a bonkers movie. Next, we have another pretty recent film, The Mist, which came out in 2007, directed by Frank Darabont. Number three on the list. This is a 73% Critic score on Rotten Tomatoes and a 65% audience score on IMDb is a 7.1. This also has one of the fucking best endings in horror history. Holy crap. Which is different from the book. So after a powerful storm damages their marine home, their main home. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking Ariel font, font, We should change the font. Yeah. (laughs) Or have better glasses. (laughs) (laughs) David Drayton and his young son head into town to gather food and supplies. Soon after, a thick fog rolls in and engulfs the town trapping the Draytons and others in the grocery store. Terror mounts as deadly creatures reveal themselves outside, but that may be nothing compared to the threat within where a zealot calls for a sacrifice. This is an excellent film. It's a claustrophobia, and it's just this great monster movie, too, where this mist is basically, you can imagine another dimension opened up where there are monsters and they're invading our plane, our world, and the mist is probably their atmosphere is the way I look at the film. And so they start wreaking havoc trying to get into the, the grocery store. And there's some great gore, great kills, creature feature. It's got some pretty solid CGI. He did rely on it pretty heavily, so it hasn't aged super well. That being said, a lot of the practical effects look great. It's a messed up movie. The last five minutes, not last three minutes, yeah. it's, dis- it's so crazy because... One of the characters does something that you think is the right thing to do, but my god, my god, you gotta watch it if you never it's seen crazy. it. It's, it's, it's in, crazy. It's insane ending. It's, crazy. it's insane. I was devastated at the end of this movie. Devastated. It's one of those movies where at the at the end you're like, holy fuck! And it has an, the OG Punisher, Thomas Jane, man. Thomas Jane. He's awesome. All right, let's head to our intermission. 
and then we'll get back to more of Stephen King adaptations. The very best way you can support Raiders of the Lost podcast is to share us with your friends and family. If they love movies, they love TV, and they love horror, definitely send them our show and send them this episode. It's the best way for a podcast to grow, as well as we have over 500 episodes. All you got to do is search Raiders of the Lost podcast and like pick a movie. There's a good chance we've done it. You can search that in Google, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, You'll find that episode, and you'll enjoy the hell out of it, hopefully. You can also leave those five-star ratings and reviews on Spotify and Apple. They help us get seen by new listeners. And it's also so fun to read the written reviews on Apple. I'll get to one in just a minute. And you can also become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. It's a subscription-based form of support for the show where you also get bonus content, bonus episodes every single week access by every patron in every tier we have five memberships of cost we have two dollars five dollars ten dollars twenty five dollars and one hundred dollars every tier as you go up the ladder has just bangers bonkers perks they get better and better unbelievable perks you can get access to our <laughs> get access to our discord like all over the I know. place you get, I know. i'm trying to sell it shit man i'm trying to try to make some money you can <laughs> You get access to our Discord at $10, $25. You get a custom episode, $100. You get a private watch party. You get free merch. You get to come on the show after three months. It's just cra- it's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> it's, become I'm a patron, sorry. please. Please become a patron. You're killing me with this one. <laughs> our, our, our show is, of course, sponsored by <laughs> MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Be sure to use our promo code RAIDERS10 at MoviePosters.com. To get 10% off your order right now. They're also doing a movie poster giveaway contest in this episode with us. If you'd like to enter for a chance to win that free movie poster, all you gotta do is head on over to the IMDB page of our short film, Midnight Ruin. Leave a rating for Midnight Ruin, screenshot that rating, and DM it to us on Instagram. And don't worry, it doesn't have to be 10 stars. You can give it 7 stars, you can give it 6 stars. It's totally fine. We're happy for any kind of attention and rating and we trust your opinion. We believe we love your opinion. Let's move on into our intermission, Anthony. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. And we're going to start with the movie quote competition. Let's see if uh, we can stump you on this one. This is no dream. This is really happening. Oh, shit. I feel like I know this. I have a backup quote. All right, say it again. This is no dream. This is really happening. Who's like, oh, fuck. Oh, say the other quote. <laughs> yeah, I had a backup one in case you didn't get it. So, same movie. Don't argue or make a scene, because if you say anything more about witches or witchcraft, we're going to be forced to take you to a mental hospital. You don't want that, do you? I don't know. Rosemary's baby. Oh, my God. Shit. And Satan yeah. comes in. This is no dream. This is really happening. Yeah. <laughs> I love when this is the end spoofed it <laughs> with Jonah. So something not so chill happened last night. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, it's something so funny. Something not that chill happened last night. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, what a great line. <laughs> okay, here's my quote. I actually did a Thomas Jane theme for my intermission. Speaking of, you should have wore like a Thomas Jane shirt, just his face. (laughs) (laughs) Missed opportunity, man. (laughs) All right. Oh, shit. I just gave away. That's a huge hint, man. What, that's Thomas Jane? Yeah. (laughs) Fuck, I'm so dumb. Your fault. Let's say it. (laughs) (laughs) I have work to do. 
Read your newspaper every day, and you'll understand which section. Obituaries. I would have... <laughs> <laughs> do it again. Do it cleanly. I would have gotten this. I have work to do. Read your newspaper every day, and you'll understand which section. Obituaries. <laughs> <laughs> I love this movie. I love how Travolta is the villain. Yeah. Right. <laughs> What's the? I like the scene where um he kills the sons. Where he's like. You ever held a six pound weight over your head, over your head for more than like five minutes? Hell of a workout. workout. <laughs> <laughs> you think about that all the time. That would just pop in my head sometimes. I'll be like, man, that must be like if you drop that, it yeah. just explodes. Yeah, <laughs> Punisher, baby, the Punisher. Punisher, the OG Punisher. It's actually, I love. It's actually not the OG Punisher. We're not the OG, but like our OG Punisher. Yeah, it was our Punisher. Yeah, our, our Punisher. Punisher was Thomas Jane one. But I still like the new one. I think uh, what's his name is cast so well in it. Yeah, what's his name's great. It's John Bernthal. Bernthal. Sorry, man. Jesus, man. I know. Jesus. Sorry, I had Thomas Jane on the brain. He's going to come and punish you, man. Nope. That <laughs> sounded weird. I hope not. <laughs> Seems like a strong guy. <laughs> Probably like jujitsu background. <laughs> Moving on. Sounded so weird. He's going to punish you. <laughs> All right. I think, yes, this movie release year. The original, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 1974. Yeah. You got it. Easy. Easy. It. What year did Thomas Jane's The Punisher come out? 2002? Four. Oh, 2004. 2004. Not nice. You didn't get it right. <laughs> <laughs> Although you have like some cutoffs like him. Doesn't he? No, he doesn't have cutoffs in it. In the, the Punisher? He wears a cutoff. Yeah, he wears a cutoff. Yeah. I think in his apartment he does. Yeah, I, did, I have a, a Sauron. Dark Lord of Middle Earth cut off on cut, cut off t-shirt on. These are out, man. It's a horror episode. Yeah. I love this shirt. It's so fun. It's what does Sauron have to do with horror movies? Scary. <laughs> I guess it's a scary shirt. <laughs> <laughs> it's a scary shirt. He's a scary guy, man. All right, movie pop quiz time, Anthony. Since you don't think my Sauron shirt's scary enough for the horror episode, what director has made the most? Stephen King adaptations. Um, I would say is it Darabont? Nope. Reiner? Nope. Uh, Carpenter? Nope. Fuck. Um, Stephen King? Nope. Shit, I don't know. Mike Garris? Who the fuck is Mike Garris? <laughs> what? <laughs> Let me. So, <laughs> this is a trick question, man. <laughs> so George A. Romero has made, I think, three. He did Creep Show. Weeds in the crate, as well as the, oh, the dark half as well. Louis Teague did Cujo, Cat's Eye, Quitters, and The Ledge. Rob Reiner has done Stand By Me in Misery, so he's only done two, actually. Mary Lambert did Pet Cemetery and Pet Cemetery 2. Frank Darabont, he's done three, which we've already talked about. The Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile, and The Mist. Is the guy who made Salem's Lot in its sequels? Nope. <laughs> That is Toby Hooper, Hooper. who made so, yeah. uh, Salem's Lot as well as he, he did the Texas, uh, Texas Chainsaw, Chainsaw Massacre and Poltergeist, Poltergeist. Uh, as well as The Mangler, but those aren't Stephen King movies. But The Mangler and Salem's Lot are Stephen King. Just now, get to the guy. I'm getting to it. It's interesting <laughs> to hear the other directors <laughs> answer. it off like 16 directors. Because it's interesting. I want to know what the fucking answer is. Uh, it's building suspense. <laughs> Haven't you ever seen a fucking movie? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Just shut up. <laughs> Mike Garris. Here we go. Who's made the most <laughs> iconic legendary director? He made Sleepwalk. Hey, <laughs> can I finish? He made Sleepwalkers, The Stand, 
He made the remake of The Shining with Stephen King, Quicksilver Highway, as well as Chattery Teeth, Riding the Bullet, Desperation, and Bag of Bones. Damn. So, like so he's made the most. Damn. I was way off. <laughs> Wasn't it interesting to hear about everyone else? It was. Exactly. I think the listeners wanted to hear about all the other directors as well, man. Great job. It was very long, though. Where you gotta be? I have so much stuff to do it's today. It's noon. I have, I have what, yeah, so much stuff to do. I have a lot of uh, edits to do. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I've planned it out perfectly. <laughs> All right, what's your uh, pop quiz question? It is a really good one. I promise. <laughs> once I have, okay. once I come up with it. <laughs> How many actors have played the Punisher in live action? And can you name them? Four. Four is correct. Thomas Jane, John Bernthal, Sissy SpaceX. <laughs> yes. That's three. Um, who else has done it? What? So there was, I mean, there was the Punisher TV series and the Punisher movie. There was another Punisher movie Oh, in that guy. What's his name? You know who I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah um, it's not, no, nah, it's not the guy from Mindhunter. It's the guy from Ahsoka who passed away. Ray Stevenson. However, there's a childhood action icon who also played the Punisher in the 80s. Childhood action icon Bruce Willis. Dolph Lundgren. Dolph Lundgren. Was the first iteration of the Punisher. Dolph Lundgren. (laughs) Dolph Lundgren. That's cool. I didn't know he was the Punisher. Yeah, he was the first Punisher. A huge man to play the Punisher. He's it looks mass- pretty cool. It looks pretty cool. Does he have like the the shirt and everything like the same kind of style? No, he wears just a yellow hoodie. Are you being sarcastic? <laughs> yeah. or... He wears he wears the outfit. I'm gonna. Th- <laughs> it was a genuine question. He rides a motorcycle and everything, man. I ride a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's your streaming recommendation? Uh, well, you're skipping ahead, man. We gotta do oh haters. haters I got, I got of haters. The week and and what do we got, man? I got Raider haters. So we got Evan. Armano wrote on our short film, new short film with no trailer, unsubscribed. <laughs> we posted a couple on Instagram. I just, it was uh, a few days ago before uh, the link was really live, only for like a few hours. And I wrote, it drops on Tuesday, resubscribe. The trailer? Yes. Yes. The trailer dropped on Tuesday. The movie came out last week on Thursday. And then John M5707 wrote on our Evil Explored Anakin episode, uh, Qui-Gon Jinn couldn't control Anakin? Nah, boys. The theme is called Duel the Fates. Um, on the Jedi Council, blah, 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 blah. Qui- Qui-Gon would have been an excellent father figure and neutered <clears throat> Anakin through all the BS. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> what do you say? <laughs> <laughs> Let me... <laughs> the Anakin... <laughs> Unsubscribe. Anyways, he said, disclaimer, not real hater. Love the podcast, boys. Keep up with the good We work. love you too, but that's what we brought up in that episode. We brought up how Qui-Gon didn't die. You then. did. I disagree. You agree with him. Oh, yeah, I agree with him. That Qui-Gon I, I, uh, I disagree with John and you. I think that he would have fallen into darkness regardless. You're wrong. Ask George Lucas. You're wrong! <laughs> Sorry, continue. Nerd Dad 45 wrote, What, no love story between James and Sirius who secretly cheat on each other with Snape? Unsubscribed. <laughs> the funny thing about, so that's our, in regards to our, episode, our yeah. fan fiction, the Marauders episode we did. What's funny is like any 
IP, you can search like fan fiction or arts, and there's so many like relationships that people like make of them. It's actually really funny. There's a Harry and Snape thing going on. Yeah, there's Harry, Snape, James and Sirius, all kinds of stuff. But that's every franchise has that. That's like, I'm true, sure yeah. I'm sure Hunger Games, it's like PETA and Gale got together. PETA. What else you got? Hey, Zeus Grow99 wrote on our Ryan Gosling post where we posted two, a photo of two Ryan Goslings and said it was us. Well, it was us. <laughs> it was literally us. He wrote, I still don't know if y'all are related. Unsubscribed. Respectfully, though. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is because uh, I made a tweet of just Gosling from Blade Runner on, and I said literally me. Or no, a photo, photo of, of me. Yeah. photo of me. Someone commented, really smooth. You thought we wouldn't notice that you posted a picture of Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I like that. All right, next up, Logan Devries wrote on our Midnight Ruin uh, YouTube page, I went scouring the internet to find the film. It, is, it had not come out yet. Just to realize it's not out yet, for that I must unsubscribe. <laughs> on a real note, absolutely love the show, y'all. Watched about 75% of the episodes over the past few months and have become my go-to movie podcast. Keep up the killer work, gentlemen. Thank you so much. I love Thanks, to hear Logan. that. Thanks, Logan. Next up, Ryan Loftus. That's Loftus. a lot of episodes to watch in a few months. It's over 500. Next up, Ryan Loftus wrote, on our Midnight Ruin trailer, I was already excited, but now you can count me in for sure. Wait, no, that was, that's not an unsubscribe. This is a normal comment. <laughs> nice comment. <laughs> Gen Mania comment. This is what it was. Gen Mania commented on our 1999 episode. Finally listened, and I can't believe you missed the movie Go with uh, Anthony's favorite actor, Jay Moore. <laughs> but seriously, stacked ensemble cast in that film. It's way better than 200 cigarettes. Unsubscribed. <laughs> All right. I have a great... I got some more. Oh, you do? Sorry, yeah. I thought you were where, where are you going to go, man? It sounded like you were done. <laughs> it sounded like you were like... A, <laughs> you, you like your voice said... Your voice said... Okay, I I'm, was still projecting sound from no, my, you weren't. from you my went, mouth. Uh, and I was then, still, <laughs> there was like a 17-second beat. You didn't say anything for 17 I seconds. I was still making a sound. And you, Dude, you I could have made a talking. cup of coffee with that beat. <laughs> So much time. I have, to got somewhere to be. I have to edit that space got out somewhere now. To be, man. There was so much silence. Oh, how the turn tables. <laughs> Alex Watcher wrote, I'm sorry, Alex Walker wrote, not one clip from Drive. I made a clip about Ryan Gosling's acting and I just used all Blade Runner clips. Unsubscribed. Drive. It's for the movies. It's only pot time. All right, now I'm done. Are you sure? I'm positive. Thank you for giving me a moment to finish. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great five-star review from Tyler Durden Stan. Incredible movie podcast. Great name. <laughs> this podcast is perfect for people who truly love cinema. These guys are insightful and very entertaining at the same time. It makes me feel like I'm talking with my friends about film when I listen to them. I love superheroes and Star Wars as much as anyone, but it's amazing to hear long discussions about other movies like Hollywood classics and indie movies. Keep it up, Raiders. I have officially subscribed. Thanks, Tyler. Tyler Durden, we're huge fans of your movie. <laughs> and we, we are also Tyler Durden stands. Cool. All right, we're going back. In, oh, you know, streaming recommendation. I recommend The Invisible Man, the original, on Amazon Prime. They have a bunch of the Universal Monster movies on Prime right now. That's my all-time favorite. It's really incredible. Still holds up. The visual effects and special effects still look incredible, and it's mind-blowing. I highly recommend checking that film out. And I am going to recommend Night of the Living Dead, which is on Max right now. The classic from 1968. Holy crap. Man, that's old. What a banger it is. One of the OG zombie movies. George A. Romero. Just changing horror forever. Yeah. Pretty cool guy. <laughs> He's a pretty cool guy. He's also on this list. 
that we'll get to in a little bit. Oh my god, I can't wait. But first, we're going to start back up with our Stranger... Uh, not Stranger Things. Our <laughs> Stephen King adaptations list with number 11, the sequel to The Shining. Dr. Sleep came out in 2019, directed by Mike Flanagan, Rotten Tomatoes. It is a 78% critic score, 89% audience score. IMDb, it's a 7.3. Struggling with alcoholism, Dan Torrance, who is played by Ewan McGregor in this film, remains traumatized by the sinister events that occurred at the Overlook Hotel when he was a child. His hope for a peaceful existence soon becomes shattered when he meets Abra, a teen who shares his extrasensory gift of the shine. Together, they form an unlikely alliance to battle the True Knot, a cult whose members try to feed off the shine of innocence to become immortal. The lead character of the True Knot is played by Rebecca Ferguson brilliantly. This is an awesome movie. The book is excellent. I was not super excited when I first heard about the adaptation being made because it's like, how do you make a sequel to The Shining? As well as when I saw the trailer and they recreated the events at the Overlook Hotel, I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to see this, but I finally watched it. I read the book first, then I watched Dr. Sleep, and I really liked it. I thought it was a great job. Mike Flanagan, again, like we said earlier, he's like a really new, young, hut director in the horror realm, and he's got a huge audience. He's done Netflix series. He's done TV series, movies as well. He's got a fan base that's constantly growing. I think he did a great job with Dr. Sleep. Ewan's great. Rebecca are great. And continuing the story of The Shine, making it contemporary because the book came out like, I don't know, 15 years ago? Not even. So I think they did a great job this adaptation. I loved it, and I didn't want a sequel to The Shining, but he really pulled it off and made it work really well. And what I liked is I wasn't sure how much of The Shining they would put into it, but it seems as though King gave his blessing to be like, you know what, Kubrick's Shining is the pop culture set representation of the book of the, of the film, so go ahead and use the scenes from that film to connect both movies because he has to connect the memories and through shining and connecting it to the original Kubrick film and the sequences there which I found to be really cool because obviously there's things in Dr. Sleep that aren't in the Dr. Sleep movie because of the Kubrick Kubrick adaptation he did a wonderful job Ewan McGregor is awesome but Rebecca Ferguson is insanely good in this movie she's a great villain excellent antagonist and I like this new extension and in the Shining context of there are beings who absorb the Shining of others. and uh, They're kind of like a vampiric uh, spirit. And I just love the idea of how King um, expanded on his original concept, contextualizing, like, there's this force and this, whatever it is, the Shining, whatever it is, there's people who use it, and there's people who take it. I like that idea. Bontanol kind of felt like a lot like yes. Dr. Sleep. It was really That's cool. a great point. And what's awesome about Dr. Sleep, it came out in 2019. We got a bunch of re, uh, re-filming and recreations of The Shining. We also got recreations of The Shining in 2018 with Ready Player One, yeah. where one of the keys is at the Overlook Hotel in the movie set in The Shining, and the characters go there. So there was a lot of fun back-to-back years going into The Shining world. And a great choice by Flanagan was not to have an actor play Jack Nicholson in, like, CGI's face. But they got an actor who has similar features, and he had a similar vibe to Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance, then they used that instead, which I thought was smart. Yeah, you can't replace Jack Nicholson. Yeah. But, yeah, I think I agree, not, like, a face swap or anything like that, not just using a double. Just, like, it's just an actor. It, it still got, works. Yeah. That's cool. It's, it, you know what's cool, though, is I love seeing 
when people face swap actors for other actors in movies and the Jim Carrey face swap for The Shining. Yeah, that looks good. That looks yeah. awesome because he kind of looks like Jack. A Schwarzenegger Titanic one. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> insane. That's a lot it's of ridiculous. It's, I think it's like Billy Monarch's account that yeah, face swaps Monarch, Arnold yeah. onto everyone. It's pretty great. Let's move on. Before we get more into Stephen King's top 20 adaptations, we are doing a movie poster contest this week from our sponsors, MoviePosters.com. In order to enter this contest to win a free poster, all you have to do is leave a rating of our short film on IMDb. So leave a rating for Midnight Ruin, screenshot that IMDb rating, and then DM it to us on Instagram. That enters you into the contest. We're going to pick a winner in one week. Good luck, everyone. Next up. We have It Chapter 2, which came out in 2019 as well. Hot year for Stephen King. Andy Muschietti also directed the follow-up to his first film. This has a 62% Rotten Tomato score for critics and a 78% audience score. On IMDb, it is a 6.5. Defeated by members of the Losers Club, the evil clown Pennywise returns 27 years later to terrorize the town of Derry, Maine once again. Now adults, the childhood friends have long since gone their separate ways. But when people start disappearing, Mike Hanlon calls the others home for one final stand. Damaged by scars from the past, the United Losers must conquer their deepest fears to destroy the shape-shifting Pennywise. Now, more powerful than ever. This was a really good sequel. I enjoy it. It does get quite a lot of flack online. Um, but I actually I really like the film. It is quite long, though. It's a 2.45 is the runtime. I think maybe even longer. So it's really close to three hours. doesn't need to be, but I understand. But I think that Muschietti did a great job following up the first film. I love the new cast of adults. These are like a bunch of my favorite actors of their generation. So you get McAvoy, Chastain, or just like having them in. Bill Hader is excellent. So the cast is really fantastic. And then Bill Skarsgård, his dynamic with the adult actors is a nice change of pace from what it was like with the kids. Because with the kids, there's like the innocence. But with adults, especially for someone like me relating to it, I'm about their age, so I it's a different kind of context of an older character encountering Pennywise, which I really like about the film. Another great score, more great cinematography, really scary kills. I think the, uh, the kill of the little girl under the bleachers during the baseball game, or it's a football game, whatever, I think that's one of the scariest parts of both movies. But then also... The mirror room in the carnival with McAvoy and that kid gets trapped inside the mirror room and Pennywise is like licking the glass and starts bashing his head on it. That was a great scene. And the cast was great in terms of casting actors who look or feel like the younger actors and actresses who play the kids in the first film. And then they cross cut in this one, right? Yes. Yeah. So the kids are in it a lot. But I think uh, having like Bill Hader cast as Richie, that Finn Wolfhard, that was like the perfect casting. Jessica Chastain as the uh, the older Beverly and James McAvoy is the older Bill. Those three leading out this cast for this incredible movie for a sequel to a movie that, you know, no one thought anyone could pull off. It was less successful at the box office. I believe it was like $450 million. So, I mean, we combine these movies. It made a billion dollars total over a lot of money. billion for two movies. Really successful horror. Now, moving on to number 13, we have a Johnny Depp movie. Oh, yeah. Secret Window. This came out in 2004. Directed by David Kep, the writer from Indiana Jones and Star Wars, right? Or Indiana Jones? Um, I'm not about sure about Star Wars. It's just Lawrence Kasdan for Star Wars. David Kep in, in Indy. What was David? David Kep? Kep's written a bunch of stuff though. 
He's a very prolific screenwriter and director. He could have helped. Let me double check that. I wanna... Yeah, check out his IMDb. David Kep spelled K-O-E-P-P. Good window. Indiana Jones. In Jurassic Park. Yeah. Bunch of Spielberg stuff. So, Ron Tomatoes. It's a 45% critic score. Really? 65% audience score. IMDb, it's a 6.5. Now, the synopsis for Secret Window. While in the process of an ugly divorce from his wife, writer Mort Rainey, played by Johnny Depp, relocates to his remote cabin in upstate New York for solitude. Sounds kind of similar to Jack Torrance. Attempting to recover his mental health, Rainey has the misfortune of being found by John Shooter, played by John Turturro, a farmer who claims Rainey plagiarized his work. At first, Rainey ignores the accusations, but Shooter, 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 has, the, has no intention of quietly disappearing. Soon, Shooter becomes increasingly vicious in his quest for retribution. This is a great movie for fans of corn. Yeah, fans of corn, but not the band like corn, right? No, yeah, just, just corn, corn. corn. Yeah. Uh, Johnny's awesome in this movie. It's got a great twist at the end. The last 30 minutes really make it. It's a great mystery as well as it, it, it like, there's a lot of sleeping in this movie, so a lot of napping. I mean, the thing is, you can watch Johnny Depp just chill. Yeah. It, that's what the movie is. Naps for half the movie, I swear. <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh, this is entertaining. Yeah, so Johnny, you just watch him, it's fine. But he's yeah. great. It's got a great mystery. You know, this, this great, this author who's trying to, like, Gets life back together, has this other person who comes in and says, you've been plagiarizing my work, you stole my work, I'm coming after you. But he's trying to prove his innocence and prove it's wrong. But then some deaths start to happen around this small town that, you know, deaths don't normally happen in, in murders. And he believes that Shooter's the one that's out for him and coming to get him. Shooter. But it's got a great twist that yeah. you don't see coming, really. Yeah, we don't, we don't want to say much about it because the twist is really that impactful. Um, definitely check it out. If you're a Giant Depp fan, this is one of his really better um, modern performances. Um, really before he started doing the big franchises. It's excellent for his 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 career. Yeah, 21st Century Johnny, we associate yeah. him with so many eccentric roles. Yeah. Even in the 90s and 80s. But I think this is one of those ones that fly under the radar for his career. Yeah, very underrated for him. Alright, next up at number 14, we have our first vampire movie. Well, technically Dr. Sleep, you said they're vampiric. Yeah, but not not vampire. They're chilling in the sun all the time. Yes. They're like sunbathing. <laughs> <laughs> On top of that trailer. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Salem's Lot came out in 1979, directed by Toby Hooper. It has a Rotten Tomatoes critic score of 89%, but an audience score of 25 points below with 65%. 24 points below. IMDb is a 6.7. David returns to Salem finding the formerly warm and friendly community to be downright sinister. He suspects that the bizarre behavior of his old neighbors is due to the work of an eccentric antique stealer. Toby Hooper made a big splash with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and this was a great follow-up. Salem's Lot is a really cool vampire movie, great special effects, great costume design and character design, awesome cinematography, and I really enjoy the film. It's not as good as it could be, but I think it's still very solid. I'm looking forward to the upcoming adaptation that's coming out next year. But this is a really solid movie. I enjoy it. Um, it's got a, a couple of sequels that aren't good at all, though. It's similar to It, the miniseries, where it didn't age super well, yeah. and it can really use some new blood, a new reboot, a new invigoration to the story and to the 
especially the vampire design, which at the time was interesting cool. and scary and campy, but now it's like that's a guy in a suit, yeah. like or with like the makeup's not it hasn't held up completely. And I think that will be a great strength to the new adaptation for Salem's Lot. And I believe the lead is going to be played by the guy who is Bob in Top Gun Maverick. That is correct. What's his name? Uh, we always forget it. Hold on, let me pull it up. Cause we I, always forget the guy's name. <laughs> we always have to I'm He's new, it. he's new, you know, he's, he's coming up. Top Gun Maverick Bob is played by, played by, hold on, I'm pulling it up, pulling it up. Here well, we go, here we go, here we go, here we go. Sorry, it's a big cast list. Bob is Lewis Pullman. Bill Pullman's son. So Lewis Pullman will be the lead in this. And I, I'm excited to see a re reboot of this movie. I love vampire movies, and it's an awesome book. Recommend checking it out. After the, the onslaught of Dracula movies this year, it would be nice to see a non-Dracula vampire movie soon. True, true. All right, number 15 on our list, we have Creepshow from 1982, directed by George A. Romero, 65% Critic score, 69% audience score. IMDb, 6.8. That's like the most consistency. Like of all the yeah. ratings. Holy crap. I, I, think even... could, I think this is a really just accurate judge. Of I've like, never seen yeah. that before. Like all that close They're within pretty, a couple points of each other. Pretty spot on. And then it's a <laughs> compendium of five shorts but terrifying tales contained within a single full-length feature film. One story, a monster escapes from its holding cell. Another focuses on a husband, played by Leslie Nielsen, with a creative way of getting back at his cheating wife. Other stories concern a rural man, played by Stephen King, and a visitor from outer space, and a homeowner with huge bug problems and a boozing corpse. It's silly, it's campy, it's like 80s horror dialed to a thousand, it's fun, and it's a great anthology sh short story movie, basically. Next up, at number 16, we have a film with James's favorite actor in it, John Cusack. <laughs> 1408, which came out in 2007. This is actually a pretty good movie. Uh, Michael Hafstrom wrote, uh, directed this film. It has a 80% on Rotten Tomatoes for critics, 61% for audience, and an IMDb of 6.8. Mike Enslin, played by John Cusack, is a successful author who enjoys worldwide acclaim debunking supernatural phenomena. Before he checks into the Dolphin Hotel, that is, ignoring the warnings of the hotel manager, played by Sam Jackson, he learns the meaning of real terror when he spends the night in a reputedly haunted room. I think this movie really works. We get a lot of great surrealism combined with horror because the room makes uh, Mike see things and experience things. Um, and then Sam Jackson is a great supporting actor. It's a small cast, but it's really cool. I think it's an excellent concept, one of the more interesting Stephen King novels. Um, but I think they did a, a really great job adapting it. It's not perfect, but that being said, I think it's a really good one. It reminds me, what's that Jim Carrey movie where he's in a hotel room? The number 23? Room 23? Well, the number 23 is the film, but he's not, like, in a room. He's just, like, writing a 23 everywhere. He hotel sees room. 23 everywhere. Gotcha. He spends a lot of time in his home. It's not, like, one room. You're thinking of the mystery one, the motel one, where everybody's connected? Moving maybe, on. Maybe fuck yourself. Maybe fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to number 17, we have Gerald's Game. Came out in 2017, directed by Mike Flanagan. Ron Tomatoes, it's 91% critics, 71% audience. IMDb, it's a 6.5. A woman accidentally kills her husband during foreplay. They had driven out to a remote area in an attempt to reignite their failing relationship. 
handcuffed to the bed, she soon she soon becomes delirious. This movie's crazy, awesome concept, disturbing. There's a sequence where you know this this woman, she's handcuffed to the bed, both hands handcuffed, and she's alone, and she doesn't want to die, obviously. And there's a sequence where it's one of the one of those disturbing imagery where you just gotta look away. It's gross what she's trying to do to escape, and it's got a crazy ending. A great last like 10 minutes um i recommend checking it out it was a netflix movie right i'm not sure if it, it might have been netflix i think yeah. it was a netflix yeah, film. it was definitely a streaming release but um it's 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 messed up next up we have another messed up movie at 18 we have cujo which came out in 1983 directed by lewis teague on rotten tomatoes this is a 59 critic and then 46 audience score imdb is a 6.1 but i think this movie is just so shocking that that's why we put it on this list, and it's so it's just memorable for my life. Just Cujo, when I hear the name, when I see an image, I'm like, oh fuck! In this tale of a killer canine, man's best friend turns into his worst enemy. When sweet Saint Bernard Cujo is bitten by a bat, he starts behaving oddly and becomes very aggressive. As Cujo morphs into a dangerous beast, he goes on a rampage in a small town. Stay-at-home mom Donna gets caught in Cujo's crosshairs on a fateful errand with her son, Tad. Stuck in their tiny car, Donna and Tad have a frightening showdown with a crazed animal. So the dog gets rabies, and it's trapped the family inside of the car, and it's basically trying to get inside, and they're try- she's trying to figure out a way of the- them getting out of there because the car won't start, and they have to get out of here. The hot sun, they're cooking, they haven't had food or water, you know, they're, they're on the... They're close. They're on death's door. So it's an excellent concept. Very scary. Very frightening. Our mom, I don't know why, had us watch this when we were kids. She loves it even though she's terrified of dogs. So, But it's, it's just horrified me as a kid. But it's a really fun horror movie. It's great. Number 19, we have Pet Cemetery, which came out in 1989. Directed by Mary Lambert. Ron Tomatoes, it's a 51% critic score, 60% audience. IMDb, a 6.5. Dr. Lewis Creed moves his family to Maine. Of course it's Maine. It's a Stephen King story where he meets a friendly local man named Judd Crandall. After the Creed's cat is accidentally killed, Crandall advises Lewis to bury it in the ground near the old Pet Cemetery. The cat returns to life. Its personality changed for the worse. When Lewis's son, Gage, dies tragically, Lewis decides to bury the boy's body in the same ground despite the warnings of Crandall and Lewis's vision of a deceased patient. It's creepy. It's eerie. Bringing back the dead. They're not exactly who they once were. It's disturbing. We got a little kid with a, a murderous tendencies. It's, <laughs> it's messed up. And I believe they're rebooting this next it was year done, as well. No, it's a oh, sequel that's coming out. Yeah, so the first one was well-received, so now they're making a sequel to it. Yeah, I didn't see it, uh, I didn't but see I've seen it. the original. It's it's just a classic horror movie. Great title, too. Okay, the final list on our top 20 of Stephen King adaptations is an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, The Running Man, which came out in 1987, directed by Paul Michael Glazer. On Rotten Tomatoes, it is a 66% critic score, 61% audience score, with an IMDb of 6.7. In the year 2019, <laughs> America is a totalitarian state where the favorite television program is The Running Man, a game show in which prisoners must run to freedom to avoid a brutal death. Sounds a little familiar. We've seen plenty of things like this in the past, Hunger Games most notably. <laughs> Having been a, made a scapegoat by the government, an imprisoned Ben Richards has the opportunity to make it back on the outside again 
by being a contestant on The Deadly Show. Although the twisted host, Damon Killen, has no intention of letting him escape. Also, um, Death Race, um, bl- uh, Rollerball, other movies about like violence, mayhem, and death as entertainment, like a sport, similar to this. Hunger Games. Yeah, Hunger Games are number, definitely the biggest one to draw from it. Battle Royale. Like the original... Uh, Rollerball with James Caan. That's a good one. Yeah. That's good. Not the Chris Klein one. Just not a lead actor, man. It didn't he work. didn't have it. He didn't he have got it. got a shot. He, he got, got a shot. shot. He got a shot. But that wraps up our top 20 Stephen King adaptations. Now we'll talk about movies that are pretty good, adaptations that are pretty good, and then some that just aren't there, huge disappointments. And I think the biggest miss for us is The Dark Tower, which would have been a it could have been a great adaptation you know we we have a great western mixed with wizardry and sorcery and magic and this incredible epic story and saga of stories and you know when the adaptation was announced we were so excited you know McConaughey Idris Elba just great castings and then the movie it just was bland it was lukewarm it didn't really it wasn't very faithful to it, the to the book it, they turned it into a sci-fi movie like a literal science fiction movie and, it had inception vibes as well like, and yeah i thought idris would be a great choice for the gunslinger and he did do a solid job but like the interpretation of the whole story in what matthew mcconaughey's character is um and taking away really the supernatural the spiritual elements of it I was like, and the fantasy, the fantastical elements of it, and using really technology and science. We're just in a city. I was all like, the time. I was like, what is this? And it's it's like a machine, and it's it's like it, it's so unfaithful, and it was just really just a bad movie, not entertaining, not very good, and very uninteresting. And Idris was the perfect casting for a gunslinger. Yeah, he's great, I think he would have been. I think he. It's just the bad writing. You know, well, technically, I mean, Clint Eastwood was who Stephen King drew the character off of. So he would have been perfect casting, but Clint's too if old. If they made it, yeah. yeah. He's, he was 107 at the time. <laughs> he's 130. Now he's 130, yeah. <laughs> but Stephen King wrote The Gunslinger based upon uh, Clint Eastwood's Western performances. They're great books. It's an awesome series. I read the first two years ago, but I, I highly recommend them uh, if you've never read them before. Terrible movie. Uh, Other Misses, Carrie, the remake, the Firestarter remake. I've never seen the Firestarter remake, the one that came out with Zac Efron recently. But people said it was, it was last year. Right? It was like one of the worst movies in this year. It was in the spring. Year? Yeah, it's uh, the, the most critically riled and in, in. It was like two destroyed movie. Two like percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. or something like that. And audience score is horrible too. So I was like, I'm not gonna watch this. And then the Carrie remake, which is fine, but it's just why, why? It, it didn't improve on it at all, and actually, it was just so repetitive and redundant. It was just scene by scene, shot by shot. It's just a lot of the remakes. They're just like, here's a budget. Here are two great leads, gr- yeah. great actors and actresses. And, and they also neutered it. Yeah, it was it was m- much less uh, interesting. It was um, Julianne Moore, right? Played Correct. the mother. Yes, and, and you know, obviously Chloe Grace Moretz as Carrie. Now there are some movies that are pretty good, but this didn't quite make the cut for our top twenty. One that we liked a lot growing up was Dreamcatcher. Cool movie. That's a cool movie. And then uh, Firestarter, the original, Apt Pupil, uh, starring E. McKellen. Is very good. Uh, the Boogeyman, which came out this year, was pretty good. Uh, and then 1922, Thomas Jane's film, which came out on Netflix, is a pretty good one too. And Children of the Corn, not a great movie, but it's oh, yeah, very yeah. iconic, very memorable. It's been spoofed in a lot of stuff. It's been spoofed in South Park. So Children it's of the Corn. one of the co- best South Park episodes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. So it's not a great movie. But the idea is awesome. The yeah. concept's there. It just it's wasn't. Killer kids. Yeah, it just it's wasn't fun. executed super well. And Dolores Claiborne's another great Stephen King adaptation. 
But that wraps up our episode wow. on Stephen King adaptations. A lot of fun. That's so many one. great movies to talk about, not just in the horror genre, but just in general. Loved movies. And I mean, the top five on this list is absolutely top absurd. Top six. The Shining, Shawshank Redemption, Carrie, Stand By Me, It Chapter One, Misery, The Green Mile. The top seven absurd stories. So well written. Great ideas. One of the most prolific and most loved writers ever and especially the last 50 years i mean who's written more books that have been turned into adaptations for film and tv than stephen king and also like everything we see in, in much of what we see in these genres are inspired by his writing yeah you know like it might not be an adaptation but it's heavily inspired by what stephen king wrote in many of his novels yeah there's so many movies you write that you his know imprints. they feel it feels yeah. like a stephen king adaptation then you're like oh it's not, it's not a stephen king book that's, that's it felt exactly like one <laughs> using his archetypes using his ideas so many writers and filmmakers have drawn from Stephen King as inspiration. Can you believe what the horror genre would look like without him? Wouldn't exist. He created what? horror. Yeah, he invented <laughs> scary things. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen King invented horror. Just kidding. Thank you so much for tuning in. Again, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to share us with your friends and family members. Share us on Instagram, on Twitter. We'll always repost everything as well as leaving those five-star ratings on Spotify and Apple. And become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Take care, everybody. See you next time. I love Anthony's horror outro. <laughs> This episode was executive produced by our Chosen One patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Becca Keen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy-Griggs, Nicholas Martin, Darian Singleton, Tyler McFly, Andrew Hagen. Our Chosen One patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Raiders of the Lost Podcast.